welcome. This is Kristen Chuck, one of your co-hosts at the Accord Research Alliance podcast. I'm coming to you today launching a very special promotional series that we're going to run leading into our annual spiritual metrics and research intensive. This event is only a short month away. I can't believe how soon it is. Actually, it'll be held Monday, September 30th at the Ridgecrest Conference Center in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. This will be preceding the One Accord annual forum. So we hope you can make it if you're not already signed up. Uh, It's not too late to register. We hope to see you not only at the Spiritual Metrics and Research Intensive, but also at the forum as well. Um, This year, we're tackling a pretty large, but I think exciting topic of measuring difficult things. Uh, So we're gonna have a number of high caliber speakers um, and practitioners on stage discussing how to measure all that matters in Christ-centered relief development and advocacy. So you really don't want to miss this. Now, leading into this event, as I said, we want to offer some of our highlight moments from last year's forum by turning them into podcasts. So the first one in our mini promotional series is actually Jean Duff, who was our keynote speaker last year. She is the president for the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Local Communities. So throughout this podcast today, you'll hear Jean give a little bit of an overview of the faith and development sector, including talking about main actors, issues of focus, and also potential research opportunities. Now, the thing I really appreciated about Jean's talk last year was sort of a call of action, call to action, I guess, that she gave um, for Accord member organizations to really put this impactful evidence that we're gathering out there into the world and, and give some suggestions on how to do that. Now, this year at the intensive, we're going to have Jean's colleague, Dr. Olivia Wilkinson, who is the director of research at the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Local Communities. She's going to be making the case for bold evidence gathering amongst faith-based nonprofits and really where efforts should be focused for the greatest impact. So I think uh, putting out Jean's talk today from last year is a great lead-in into what Dr. Wilkinson will be discussing at the forum this year. So we hope you enjoy. If you weren't there at the intensive last year, it's a great opportunity for you to see what you've missed and what you've been missing. And if you were, we hope this is a great recap of um, Jean's talk from last year. So sit back and hope you enjoy. To you, uh, I, want, I made another mention, but you have the handouts on your table. I mentioned a little bit about the learning houses before. Gene, uh, thank you so much. Gina's joining us from is it Ireland or yep. Ireland, Ireland, if I remember correctly. Uh, she is uh, pretty much travels all over the world. She is kind of the glue that holds together uh, uh, many different faith-based organizations and their attempts to bring to light the kind of work that they're doing and the impact of the work that they do. So, Jane, we all owe you a great debt of gratitude. Let me uh, hand it over to you. And can we just give Jane, Jean a hand as she joins us? Thanks. Thanks very much. Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me okay. Is the sound okay? Yes. Yep. Yep. 
Great. Yeah, I was hearing as I was just waiting to become, uh, come on here now, I was hearing a lot of laughter. So uh, that goes very well for the start of the meeting. I couldn't hear the, the, the grounds for the laughter. The laughter was, uh, was very encouraging. So um, it's my aim, uh, and I hope it's what David wanted, but anyway, here we are. Um, it's my aim to be um, uh, sort of rather landscapey, I mean, to, to do a bit of an overview uh, today, and perhaps to be a little bit provocative. Um, in setting the context for your working meeting today um, by giving you um, something of an overview uh, of what I see going on, uh, some of the changes that I see going on uh, in the sort of the larger world uh, or context for our work as faith-based organizations. Uh, so that's my plan, and I will try to go for uh, about 30 minutes or so. Uh, I don't know if David has yet had a chance to hand out the, uh, just the, the copies of the slides, but there, but, um, please don't worry about the, the sort of the, the range of uh, information and so forth, because you will be getting a copy of the uh, slides uh, at, the end, at the end of the session as well, and that will be available to you. Um, so great, so now I'm just going to uh, share my screen here, um, let's see if we can uh, get ourselves going. Um, Excuse me one second while I just get this up on the screen. Okay, so I'm hoping that you are now seeing a screen. Yes, it looks like um, we have a screen up, is that right? Yep, we can see it, Jean, thanks. Okay, perfect, good. So um, I'm going to talk today uh, about current trends in faith engagement in development and humanitarian response. Uh, so that's sort of my, my overall aim. And as David now said, I'm speaking uh, from the perspective of the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Noble Communities. Um, some of you who know me will know that uh, my background is um, in uh, both clinical psych and epidemiology, and I worked for many years at the National Cathedral in Washington, running the Center for Global Justice and Reconciliation there, and then subsequently running something called the Center for Interfaith Action on Global Poverty. And from those vantage points, I had the tremendous privilege um, of uh, convening across denominational lines and across, across um, religious faith tradition lines um, around first the MDGs and then subsequently the SDGs, and then more recently uh, around humanitarian issues. So I guess um, my vantage point is, is looking at the, at the, the, the macro picture um, of how faith-based organizations of all stripes are responding um, to the enormous demands uh, around the development of humanitarian agendas. So today, in terms of my presentation, I'm just dividing it into four uh, general parts. Uh, parts. Um, I thought I want to spell out my operating assumption, um, which is that everything we do is towards the fullest possible engagement of uh, faith-based assets, writ large, uh, all assets in meeting the holistic needs of vulnerable people and communities. Uh, so our, uh, I would assume for the sake of, of this talk that, that we have a common goal uh, of uh, seeing to it that uh, all the potential and capacities of faith-based organizations are fully engaged. Um, I'm going to talk today, I'm going to touch on, on a, a bunch of um, aspects of what I see as the growth and demand for faith engagement. Um, I'm going to try to draw out a little bit some of the opportunities and challenges that is associated with that growth and demand. Um, mention some of the implications of research 
and then just uh, take you um, through some highlights of the joint learning initiative. And I know we're going to have questions at the end, so I think we'll, we'll hold questions until we get through, if that's okay. So in terms of the demand uh, for faith engagement in the public sector of the donor world, um, let's look first at multilateral agencies, and then let's come back to uh, governmental or bilateral agencies. Um, we've been working, JLI's been working a lot recently with UNICEF and uh, have had the opportunity to have a, a unique window into thinking of that um, very large organization. As many of you know from your work in country, uh, UNICEF of all the um, UN agencies is the one by far that is most engaged on the ground um, with faith-based organizations for the benefit of children. And uh, they are going through a, a fascinating um, scale up and, and the development of a new initiative that they're calling the Faith for Social and Behavior Change Initiative. Um, the initiative is a collaboration between two departments of UNICEF, one what they call Communications for Development, which is one division, and then the second is the Division of Communications where the Civil Society Partnership activities are housed. And uh, they have set out a partnership with uh, Religions for Peace, and the Joint Learning Initiative around this uh, Global Faith and Social Behavior Change Initiative. And Karita McDonald, whose name is on the bottom there, is sort of the leading champion on the C, so-called C4D side, in case any of you know her. Uh, this is a horrifying slide. <laughs> so there will not be a test on this slide at the end of the, uh, the, end of the presentation. But I put it up, um, not for you in any way to dive into the boxes, but to understand the background of the communications for development. So uh, UNICEF has an extraordinary depth of expertise um, on social and behavior change um, in general. In fact, they have, I think, several hundred people uh, who are specialists in, in C4D, in, in social behavior change, working in their uh, field offices, in their, in their country offices. So they think very, very systematically about uh, a theory of change and about how change for children, including well-being of children, is brought about. And you'll see there in the middle um, uh, part, there's, there's the darker green boxes, the C4D outputs, uh, where they look at service-based platforms. They're thinking about community organizations and networks, and that's where normally faith-based organizations would stand. Um, so the scale-up on this faith for social behavior change initiative is taking place in the context um, of this broader theory of change um, uh, that, that UNICEF needs to guide, guide its work. We're very excited about the Faith for Social Behavior Change Initiative, which is just beginning, and it, it just, we just started working with UNICEF in April, because we see it as a possibility of a new way of working. Um, I think it's fair to say, and indeed UNICEF themselves would say it uh, in, in some cases, that in the past, the partnership with faith-based organization has been rather an instrumentalized one. Uh, it's been, okay, you know, faith community is there, uh, very influential, great opportunity to get messages out that will be good for kids, uh, so let's just, let's just do that. And, it, and, and it, that has been um, very often the primary modus operandi. We're excited um, in, in this uh, growing collaboration with uh, UNICEF about the possibility of a whole new way of working for all of us uh, in the faith sector um, with UNICEF. Uh, and that I would characterize that way of working as being a participatory process um, 
which would be working towards uh, co-creation stance with local faith actors. Uh, so it's a very different, different mode. I think there's a recognition that faith actors um, are interested in the holistic well-being of the child uh, rather than necessarily any one thematic aspect uh, or programmatic aspect. And that, um, that a long-term sustainable uh, benefit for children can be gained um, through a participatory co-creation process with faith communities. So that's really exciting. That's big news. Um, we've been working um, in, a, in a listening, a very intensive listening mode with faith actors uh, from around the world. This little picture here from a, a recent uh, workshop in Thailand, uh, which brought uh, partners in from 17 countries, 17 of the uh, UNICEF national offices, members of their governments, and the and eight partners from the national offices as well, um, doing a SWOT analysis and, and looking at uh, the, the way of working. Um, one of the things that's very interesting is that, that through this faith and social behavior change initiative, uh, we see that UNICEF is beginning to recognize um, the, the faith way of working um, in, a, in a larger mode. So, um, sorry, I don't have a pointer here, but on, on the left-hand side, you can see that the, the, the activities related to engaging and mobilizing faith communities um, are laid out through leadership, membership, groups, and structures. Um, and in the yellow uh, circle, um, recognizing what we're calling, and we're collectively calling the mind-heart dialogue. Uh, so the notion that, on the one hand, faith communities have the mobilizing and the influencing um, uh, set of capacities, but that what's unique about the faith communities is this uh, is this values paradigm, and it is the spiritual uh, the spiritual context and the possibility uh, of all that that entails. And where these two activities intersect uh, is is around scriptural principles and around spiritual uh, capacities, um, with then the experience, testimonies, uh, technical inputs, and the uh, the power analysis, the context of power analysis go with that. Um, and across the top, you'll see interfaith, so within the faith community, interfaith, and then uh, faith community as a whole. So um, what we're seeing here is, is basically the, the elaboration of a new way of thinking very broadly uh, about the capacities of faith communities uh, by UNICEF, and uh, it's very, uh, a, a very interesting new approach to engaging. So what this might mean in practice uh, for us faith communities? Um, First of all, there's, a, there's an activity to understand the existing work of faith actors um, in, in, a, in a holistic way. Um, 17 case studies from uh, case studies from 17 countries are being are being developed. Um, there will be, I think, a broader mapping of potential partners, um, being particularly aware of um, gaps in current partnerships. So UNICEF has had long-standing partners, partnerships with faith-based organizations, but they are aware through this um, uh, process of, of many significant gaps um, in religious partnership. There's also a huge process now going on to develop a theory of change uh, for faith-based influence and faith-based activity. Uh, reminding you about that horrible slide I showed you before. We, we are developing, I guess, equally horrible versions um, of theories of change as they apply to the faith-based world. Um, and uh, a very interesting participatory process there as well. Out of that will come 
uh, UNICEF will produce guidance uh, documents for their national UNICEF offices, uh, which will um, make recommendations and, and uh, give direction to how national offices may uh, engage with local pay factors. And in particular, will emphasize this participatory process that we've talked about. So uh, a very exciting rollout, rollout um, of um, a changed way of thinking about the capacity of local, local pay factors. So moving on to um, the humanitarian side. So if you like, if, if we look at UNICEF uh, on the development side, uh, let's just take a, a look at what's happening on the multilateral uh, front when it comes to humanitarian issues. Just starting with the Global Compact on Refugees, of course, you all know there's one going on in relation to migrants as well. Um, extracting from the uh, GCR um, uh, the, the focus on faith actors. So there finally is a recognition um, that faith actors uh, are the key players and that they could support um, the uh, <coughs> Process and delivery of sorry, moving my screen here so I can see my slide. <laughs> Whoops. Support the planning and delivery arrangements to assist refugees and host communities, including in the areas of conflict prevention, reconciliation, peace building, as well as other relevant areas. So good, good check, uh, check on the recognition. Um, but how uh, is an organisation like? UNHCR living into that. Um, so traditionally, um, I would say UNHCR has been very little engaged uh, with faith actors. Oops, I was jumping around there. Didn't mind myself. There we are. Um, I would say that UNHCR has been uh, not much engaged uh, with faith-based organizations. Um, uh, in, certainly in the domestic resettlement in the United States, of course, uh, nine out of the 11. Um, resettling uh, organizations who are faith-based um, with, uh, with U.S. government funding. Um, there are certainly long-term faith-based relationships, but in terms of a widespread holistic understanding of the role of faith actors, it's very, very new at UNHCR. So there is now underway uh, a UNHCR-funded activity, an action-learning activity looking at how local faith communities are supporting uh, refugees. Uh, a six-country study uh, has is uh, midway through completion in uh, uh, refugee-affected countries, including Honduras, Mexico, Uganda, Lebanon, Bangladesh, and Germany. Um, looking at interviewing uh, refugees themselves, interviewing the host communities, uh, and interviewing um, faith actors. Um, uh, as to what roles uh, local faith actors are actually playing. So what this might mean in practice uh, is, first and foremost, understanding the existing work uh, of local faith actors, um, identifying support of religious leaders um, who would uh, be particularly helpful in counteracting the prevalent um, xenophobia, uh, mapping potential partners, as we said before, filling in the gaps, in religious tradition and uh, in the thematic areas. Um, establishing mutual relationships and understanding of trust, especially in non-camp settings, so in urban settings and uh, outside uh, camp-based settings. And uh, paving the way for a holistic response, going beyond the traditional humanitarian response to include the humanitarian development nexus. 
Switching gears a little bit now uh, to looking at the demand for faith engagement um, in uh, governmental agencies and, and bilaterals, uh, we'll start first with um, a coordinating mechanism that many of you will have heard of, the Partnership for Religion and Development. Um, this is an international partnership on religion and sustainable development. Uh, it was launched uh, in 2015 um, at the World Bank Conference on Religion and Sustainable Development by the um, German government, um, and it has been co-funded by USAID and uh, BMZ, uh, which is the development uh, arm of the German, one of the development arms of the German government. Um, other governments involved include Canada, Denmark, the United Kingdom, Norway, Finland, um, with African Union represented representation. Um, and about 65 uh, faith-based organizations, including probably some of yours, um, are involved um, in this collaboration as members. So PARD is the first ever bilateral coordinated mechanism um, for sharing information, exchanging information across governments uh, around the whole question of faith engagement. Um, so it exists um, as, a, as a learning exchange, um, as a best practice exchange, um, and uh, it, it also, one hopes, is a place where uh, religious literacy within governments themselves um, can be promoted um, so that uh, we can get away from depending on singular champions who really get, let's say, uh, the, the role of faith-based organizations and who, when they themselves pass on, uh, the institutional memory is lost. We're hoping that, that an organization like Power will be very effective in um, promulgating religious literacy throughout uh, their government organizations. Check here. Um, U.S. the Journey to Self-Reliance. I'm sure that uh, you will all have been studying uh, Mark Green's uh, leadership um, in the direction of, of, of this new program called the Journey to Self-Reliance. Um, it's intended to build uh, countries' capacities to address their own development challenges, and as Mark Green says, to put the uh, international aid. Uh, business, out of business in a sense. Um, it uh, targets um, very importantly um, partnerships with civil society and of course includes faith-based organizations within those partnerships. Um, it has laid out a, uh, a set of metrics um, for measuring uh, a country's commitment to self-reliance and its capacity for self-reliance. In case anybody uh, doesn't already know it, um, there's, there is a website. Uh, if you Google Journey Self-Reliance, you'll find uh, a very interesting mapping um, of uh, aid recipient countries according to these preliminary indicators. Uh, so it's already quite a, an extensive mapping um, in, in place. So in that context, um, uh, this continues uh, the uh, previous uh, administration uh, with a commitment to local partnerships. As you recall, um, under Rochelle, I, I think it was a 30% target um, uh, of uh, moving um, assets and resources into a local partnership frame of reference. Uh, and this certainly ups the ante uh, with regard to local partnership and sets a very important context for us as faith-based organizations in terms of priority uh, of local faith partnerships in the country. So these, uh, what I would 
just to summarize then, I see very significant uh, evolution in thinking um, and evolution in what I call demand for trade engagement uh, at both the multilateral uh, and the, the bilateral level um, over the past couple of years. And I think it, it represents a tremendous opportunity um, for us uh, faith-based actors and faith-based organizations and also represents some, some real challenges. Um, and I'd like to just touch on some of those under three categories now. Um, one, the opportunity and challenge associated with local leadership. Secondly, um, the question of scale and the challenge of, of uh, reaching scale um, with perhaps inter-religious or uh, intra-religious collaboration uh, as one mechanism. And then finally, uh, the implications of research and research translation. So in terms of the, uh, the first of those, the, uh, going back to looking at local leadership and local partnership, um, it does call into a question, in, into question, uh, a new examination of our relationships with local partners. Um, and in many cases, uh, might merit a, uh, an audit um, or an assessment, a systematic assessment um, of an FBO's um, uh, local partnerships in country. Um, and uh, based on that, perhaps a new recruitment strategy. Um, it also merits uh, questions about um, the nature of the relationship with local partners. Um, what does the, what's the time frame of the, uh, of the partnership? Uh, can it be moved more towards long term? Uh, what is the process of um, engagement uh, and, and to what extent is it a participatory uh, co-creation consultative process? Um, when it comes to capacity uh, development, um, to what extent are we in a capacity building mode, transferring our skills to a local partner, uh, and uh, to what extent are we moving towards the superior capacity exchange uh, of mutuality and reciprocity? Um, and then finally, what does resource mobilization look like in the context of local partner leadership um, uh, in terms of really understanding what the need is and what resources can be mobilized externally by organizations, international organizations such as ours? We're seeing some uh, very interesting new um, constraints imposed um, by national governments. Um, I recently, I had the occasion to meet with um, both Tier Fund and uh, with folks in the ACT Alliance, um, both of them very actively engaged in responding to the Sulawesi um, disaster in, uh, in Indonesia. And uh, they were both struggling uh, with the new demands that have been placed by the Indonesian government. Uh, that basically prevent foreign NGOs uh, going directly to the field and the, the new very, very strict requirements uh, with regard to uh, international NGOs' um, collaboration with local partners. And so um, both of those organizations were pointing to this as a, uh, on one hand, an expected development, um, but one that perhaps uh, they and their networks were not yet ready for. Uh, so. Just uh, underscoring that, and again, many in the room uh, quite likely will be struggling with uh, some of these new framings from a, a public sector point of view, a governmental point of view, with regard to local leadership and local partnership. The other thing that was very interesting in recent uh, weeks, we've just had our JLI annual board meeting in Birmingham. Uh, Oxfam USA serves on our board meeting, and I was very interested to hear from um, uh, their leadership um, that they have 
decided to focus strategically uh, on uh, a tremendous amount of their resources on local leadership and on local humanitarian leadership um, and re-gearing, re-jigging a lot of their methodologies um, in a very intensive way towards advancing, strengthening local leadership as well. So the second area in terms of opportunities and challenges uh, relate to uh, scale and the possibility of collaboration across uh, denominational and religious lines. Um, so thinking through coordinating mechanisms with local partners, if one is working um, in country with local partnerships, um, what what do the, um, the what are the extensions? What are the connections beyond the individual uh, partnership look like? Um, uh, what what are the church structures? What are the congregational networks that are engaged? Uh, what religion? What regional denominational bodies are engaged? Uh, what about interreligious councils? Uh, often working at the national level. And then the global networks, uh, Act Alliance, uh, World Evangelical Alliance, MICA, and others. Um, so embedding, on the one hand, going sort of, uh, from the very grassroots underlying level uh, with the local partnership, um, but then taking that to scale. How, how, what are new ways of, of taking those uh, small local one-to-one -one partnerships to scale uh, through these uh, various coordinating mechanisms? Some of us have just recently been in Rome um, working together on the Global Faith Action for Children on the Move. Uh, these are the kids who were affected by refugee and forced migration. And you'll see the very interesting group of uh, Christian and uh, uh, Muslim organizations who came together um, to explore how it is that our, uh, our respective uh, assets and, and capabilities could be joined um, to make more of a difference for children on the move. Um, and I've given you just a link there to further study uh, of the Global Church Partners uh, Forum, um, uh, so you can see some of the papers and so on. In terms of research and the research collaboration, again, just to be provocative, <laughs> I'm putting up um, a slide from International Care Ministries. Um, I don't know if ICM is with you at the accord meeting this year, but it's a, a wonderful faith-based uh, NGO based in the Philippines. It, it works with the ultra-poor, um, primarily in Mindanao, um, and uh, it works on a very large scale. Um, uh, approximately 1,000 communities and 30 households receive this program annually, uh, a program called Transform. The Transform's program works through pastors uh, to de deliver a curriculum on values, health, and livelihoods, and uh, has, a, has a sort of a cascade model that you can see um, illustrated there. I'm mentioning ICM because of uh, the standard they, that they set with regard to research. Uh, so on the one hand, they have a very well elaborated um, internal research function, uh, where on the left-hand side of the slide, you can see the um, so the design uh, of their evaluation framework um, for their uh, for their various programs. Um, so they have the Transform program. They have something called a Trial and Prevail program, um, which feed into um, their uh, research methodology. Um, and on the right hand side, feeds that in turn feeds towards metrics and a database, um, which produces monitoring reports and research. Uh, it, 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 I, I can imagine 
for many organizations, this um, this will be an intimidating um, uh, an intimidating metric. But um, uh, they have been doing an extraordinarily evidence-based uh, process in terms of what works. Um, they conduct, um, among other things, um, randomized control trials, which is almost unheard of in our world. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about what they've been doing there in a moment. But they've also been doing uh, a variety of embedded uh, studies uh, in the program evaluation, as well as social network analysis, um, looking at the social dimension of the development program. A, a very, very rich um, set of uh, research. Um, most interestingly, and one of the reasons I bring this forward, um, is that they have conducted, uh, I think, probably the most comprehensive um, uh, randomized control trial that has ever been done um, of the impact of their um, uh, of their transform program um, on various uh, program outcomes. They're doing this in conjunction with Yale uh, University and with the Poverty Action Lab, Dean Carlin, and I've given you a, a, a link there to the working paper, uh, so that those of you who want to delve into this, getting to my time here. We want to delve into the detail uh, can take a look at this. Um, but just to summarize, the goal was to test the uh, causal impact of religiosity. Um, and researchers conducted a, an R, uh, RCT um, on, the, on the transport program, finding um, that there were significant increases uh, in religiosity and income um, with no significant changes in uh, in some of the other variables. Um, so what was particularly interesting about this uh, about this project was that they found by by assigning people into, into the usual four groups of, of control, no interventions, full program, full transform program, which is delivered by pastors with all of the um, livelihood and health curriculum associated with it, and then just the pastor about the program and then the program about the pastor, they found that uh, the most effective intervention uh, was the pastor alone um, on the on livelihoods. That showed the greatest correlation, which is very, very fascinating. They say down here at the, at the bottom of the slide that they think that the, the livelihood effect may operate through increasing grit, what they call increasing grit, um, which is another way of maybe thinking about hope and the transforming power uh, of the religious intervention, of the sense of hope of the process. Anyway, take a look at it. It's, a, it's, it's an extraordinarily rich uh, and interesting provocative. It's just the first six months of the RCT. Uh, so we expect to see more data coming through on this soon. So I must uh, move along here now and uh, finish up um, so that we can have some, some questions. But just to mention a few other things, if I may, um, the, the challenge, I think, um, uh, of, of for all of us of improving our evidence base um, is, is, uh, is, is very evident. As, as we see an increase in demand um, for faith engagement and faith activism, it also comes with a, a very strong increase in the necessity of improving the quality of our evidence and the information that we provide policymakers and practitioners um, so that they can make good decisions about how to engage with faith as I'm showing you here three evidence briefs that uh, JLI developed for the recent um, Turbulent Move program, um, and uh, one on uh, strengthening the continuum protection, one on combating xenophobia, and one on spiritual support to children. Uh, as examples of uh, really solid evidence um, for ways that faith communities can support children on the move. Um, 
To end, if I may, a couple of words about the Joint Learning Institute. Uh, some of you will be quite familiar with us, even probably members of clubs and others uh, may be new to the Joint Learning Institute. The JLI, as we call it, is an international collaboration among faith-based organizations, um, policymakers, and uh, academics, um, with the goal of gathering and synthesizing and communicating the best evidence uh, for faith groups' activity and contributions so that um, the engagement with faith-based organizations across the board can be scaled up. Um, we work um, in part through learning hubs. Um, the active learning hubs currently are on anti-trafficking and modern slavery, ending violence against children, gender-based violence, a cross-cutting hub on mobilization of local faith communities, and one on refugees. Um, you are cordially invited to take a look at the hubs, and uh, if, if there is an interest in it, thematic expertise, uh, by all means, consider joining one. Just to illustrate very quickly, um, there are about 100-plus members of the Gender-Based Violence Fund. We've seen faith-based academic and uh, policy organizations there. The hub is co-chaired by Diana Arango from the World Bank, Elizabeth Darko from the South African Medical Research Council, and Prabhu Deepan uh, out of uh, Sri Lanka uh, from the Chair Fund. The hub has produced, uh, we had some funding from different for the hub, uh, which produced uh, a fantastic series of resources and tools and evidence base on harmful practices, um, looking at uh, the, uh, the, the change in harmful traditional practices um, by working effectively with faith leaders. And again, that material is all online on the JLI website. Um, it's an example of the kinds of evidence um, uh, advocacy-oriented evidence briefs and so forth that come out of JLI. So there is the uh, JLI uh, website address and, and encourage you to uh, to take a look there. It's, a, it's, it's well worth a couple of hours of going down the various rabbit holes of the, of the website. <laughs> so thank you for your attention. I hope some of that uh, is intelligible. And I'll hand it back to you now, David. Thank you, Jean. Can we give Jean a uh, thanks? For, uh,